If you'd like to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. This is the portion of Scripture we will be considering together this Lord's Day. There are essentially two different Gospels spoken of in Scripture. One teaches that God saves man to some degree upon the basis of man's own merit. This is the so-called gospel that itself does not verbally deny or disclaim the work of Christ, but rather adds to the work of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the merit of man to some degree. Thus, man's merit, in addition to Christ's merit, becomes the basis upon which God justifies man according to this so-called gospel. Dear ones, this is not actually another gospel or another good news, but rather a false gospel and bad news. For one who embraces it cannot be saved. For it does not look by faith solely to the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness as the object of His faith, but rather looks by faith to two objects to save Him, namely Christ and man's works or the graces which God has worked within man. Listen closely to how Rome integrates both Christ and man's work as the dual meritorious cause in the justification of man. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church, page 541, we read, The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative. And then follows man's free acting through his collaboration, that is, through man's cooperation. So that, notice closely, so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God. Sounds good. To the grace of God. Then to the faithful. This catechism teaches that the merit of good works is attributed in the first place to the grace of God, but secondly, it teaches that the merit of good works is attributed to man himself, thereby having a dual meritorious cause in the justification of the sinner. The scripture does not teach that our good works merit anything before God, now or ever. It is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ that merits anything from God. Dear ones, the true and only gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, declares the obedience and righteousness of Christ alone as our meritorious cause and justification. God does not forgive our sin. 
nor declare us righteous in Christ on the basis of that which we perform or even upon the basis of that which He works within us. Whether repentance, love, or obedience, we never look inside of ourselves as the cause of our justification. It is only always looking outside of ourselves to Christ alone as the cause of our justification. We may truly say even faith itself is not the meritorious cause of our justification. As important as saving faith is, it is not the meritorious cause of our justification. Saving faith is the instrumental means by which we receive with confidence the merit of Jesus Christ. It is not the cause. It's the means. And that is why Paul states so clearly in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the following, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You see, if any man looks to any work that he has performed, or even any supposed grace that is worked within him, as the ground or cause upon which God pardons man's sin, or imputes to him the righteousness of Christ, or declares man's righteous, man righteous in his sight, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. There is no basis. There is no ground for acceptance before God except the righteousness of Christ. It is Christ plus nothing who is the ground and the cause of man's salvation. Dear ones, these life and death issues of which we're speaking today are further elaborated upon from our text in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, as we will consider the following main points from our text. First of all, the works of the law cannot justify one. In Mark 10, verses 17 through 19. Number two, the depravity of man blinds him to his own sin. In Mark chapter 10, verse 20. And number three, the sin of covetousness turns one away from Christ. In Mark 10, verses 21 through 22. Let us consider together then our first main point. The works of the law cannot justify one. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. You'll recall that Christ in the last portion of the text that we considered just earlier, he declared infants and not only adults to be members of his kingdom. And therefore, taking these little ones up into his arms, he blessed them. Christ now, from our text, resumes his journey and heading toward Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. But as he is walking along the way, he is met by a certain man who submits to him a question of life and death proportions. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Well, what do we know about this man from uh, our text and from the parallel passages of this text. Well, first of all, we know several things about him. First of all, he was a young man, according to Matthew 19.20. It is certainly commendable that a young man would have such an interest in questions that relate to his eternal soul. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Listen closely, children and young people. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember now, while you are still young, your Creator. Remember now, while you are still young, the the messages of salvation, the offers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not think that you will continue forever. When we are young, we feel so invulnerable. We feel so immortal. We feel as though we could live forever. But dear ones, there is coming an end. Not only to your youth, but there is coming an end to your life. And it would be exceedingly wise for each of you now to think in terms of these important life and death issues as it pertains to the living God, not to put it off. None of us have the guarantee that we will have time to consider these issues before we die. None of us knows how God will take us from this life. It behooves us, therefore, to consider while we are young these important matters that are laid before us. Not only because of 
the importance of eternity. But dear ones, because of setting forth a testimony for Jesus Christ while you are alive, those who think that living the world like the prodigal son is where it's at, will come to some place, sometime in their life, like that prodigal son, where they'll see this is not life. This is no fun. There is no peace or joy or contentment in this type of life. Therefore, the Lord calls you while you are young, Children, listen to me. Young people, listen to me. To embrace the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation and to follow Him, to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him all the days of your life. Secondly, this young man was a ruler among the Jews according to Luke 18.18. When we say he was a young man, we're not referring to the fact that he was probably in his teens, but he does talk about even the question as he carries on his discourse, he says, from a youth. So even from his childhood, he was interested about these things, but he now is a young man, perhaps in his 20s, But he's also a ruler among the Jews, like Nicodemus, as we find out in in John chapter 3, verse 1, was a ruler among the Jews. So was this young man. Here was one who, being yet a young man, had distinguished himself by his learning, by his wisdom, by his justice, by his mercy, to be a ruler among men. But, dear ones, all of his learning, as we shall see, had not taught him the gospel. All of his wisdom had not taught him the gospel of salvation. Whereby the Lord says in John chapter 3, Verse 15, summarizing the gospel, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thirdly, notice that this young ruler was very wealthy. According to Mark 10.22, he had great possessions. According to Luke 18.23, he was very rich. But all his riches did not bring to him that peace of conscience which he sought. He apparently believed there must be yet something he must do in order to inherit eternal life. His conscience was apparently troubling him. He was not satisfied. He was seeking more. Fourthly, this rich young ruler was so interested in the matter of eternal life that 
the text says, he came running to Jesus Christ to ask this question. In Mark 10:17, he came running. Although being very wealthy, being exalted in position, he had certain questions pertaining to his soul which weighed much more heavily upon him at that point than did what anybody else thought about the propriety of one so rich and in such an exalted position running to Christ. He didn't care, apparently, what others thought. This was of what was most important to him. This was of supreme importance to him to ask this question. One would think that a man of this stature would be much more likely at his own bidding to call or invite Christ to come to him. But we don't see that on the part of this man. This man was running to Christ to ask this question. Here was obviously a very sincere man in his own rights. He was sincere. He was not like the the, the Pharisees that we had read of in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, and other occasions that came asking questions in order to lay a trap for Christ. Here was a man who was sincerely burdened. His conscience was no doubt on fire. He needed to have some answers to the, to the questions that plagued his conscience. Here was a man who was sincere, but as we shall see, he was sincerely wrong as to what was needed in order to inherit eternal life. Fifthly and finally, this rich young ruler was even respectful of Christ, for he refers to Christ as good master in Mark 10, verse 17. Here it would seem is one who was ripe to be truly saved and to receive pardon for all of his sins. From the perspective of natural man, here would be one who would meet all of the qualifications to be saved. So it would seem. But as we shall see, he shows himself disqualified to be saved by looking to his own merit as the meritorious cause of his salvation rather than looking to Jesus Christ. Well, let us now consider more closely his question <clears throat> and Christ's response to his question. First of all, his question. In the question posed by this rich young ruler in Mark 10:17, the omniscient Christ surely saw that which in, was inferred in the question. Good master, what good Work, that's what's inferred. What good work shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This man's whole understanding of salvation 
revolved around something he must do in order to merit salvation from God. He did not understand eternal life to be a free gift received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Note the response of Christ wherein the Lord infers two truths. First, in Mark 10.18, Christ infers that he himself is God and that he is good when he says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Therefore, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, must be the object of this man's faith. The Lord would teach this man that he was not merely a a, a teacher or a prophet of God, but that he was himself the living and the true God. In effect, the Lord responds this way to this man. You merely consider me to be a good man, but do you not understand that there is only that there is no mere good man who is truly and absolutely good? Therefore, don't give me this divine attribute of God, namely goodness, if you are not willing to own me as God. From the Lord's response, we must understand then that saving faith looks to Christ not as a mere man. The object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is not a mere man. The object of our faith is the eternal Son of God who in His very nature is good. You see, dear ones, one cannot be saved if he does not understand the goodness of God in demonstrating his redeeming love to rescue ungodly sinners, ungodly enemies from his just wrath and condemnation through the obedience and the work of Jesus Christ. One cannot be saved unless they understand that God is good that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and is therefore good. If one looks by faith to his own goodness and keeping the commandments of God or to his own faith, to his own repentance, to his own love as the ground of salvation, he cannot be saved. The alone object of our faith is Christ, the eternal Son of God, and His goodness, not our own. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, And be found in Him, that is in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So the first truth inferred in Christ's response is that He, Jesus Christ, 
is the eternal Son of God and He is good. That's the object of our faith. The second truth inferred from Christ's response in Mark 10.19 to the question of the rich young ruler is that the works of the law cannot justify him. In Matthew's account, chapter 19, verse 17, the Lord adds the following words. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Rather than teaching the works of the law cannot justify one, people would look at that and it face value, it may seem, well, the Lord is actually saying, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, go and keep the commandments and you'll inherit eternal life. Well, in an absolute sense, that's true. In an absolute sense, if a man were able perfectly and absolutely to keep all of God's commandments, he would merit eternal life. In an absolute sense. But since the fall, no one is able to do so. No one even desires to do so. You see, the Lord here, knowing by His omniscience the disposition of this man toward keeping the law in order to inherit eternal life, takes him back sends him back to the law and what the law absolutely requires if one would be righteous before God on the basis of keeping the law. In Galatians chapter 3, Verse 10, notice the perfection of the law that is required if one is to be justified on the basis of keeping the law. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Not some things. Not 95% of the things. Not even 99.9% of the things. But 100% of the righteousness of the law. Perfect obedience. To fall short is to fall under the curse of the law. So the scriptures teach. And that is why, again, it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. There's none who seeks after God. That all are condemned, both Jew and Gentile, by the law. All stand accountable. The mouths of everyone are shut, tightly closed when they stand before the law of God. You see, the Lord 
is not in any way taking this man back to the law in order to for this man to look to the law by faith or the keeping of that law as the basis for his inheriting eternal life. But rather, he is taking this man back to the law in order to demonstrate him the, uh, to him the utter futility and the impossibility of being saved by it. The Lord sends him in this passage to the second table commandments, commandments 5 through 10. These are the commandments that the Lord specifically mentions. Not because God or not because Christ was saying that this man was not guilty of breaking the first four commandments, but because the Lord would point out one commandment in particular that would evidence his violation of God's law. As we shall see, it is the violation of the tenth commandment, covetousness. Which incidentally, as you look at the list in Mark chapter 10, that is uh, the only one of the commandments that is omitted in verse 19. You can find there the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, and the ninth commandment, but not the tenth commandment. But that's because in verse 21, he nails him with the Tenth Commandment. Before passing on to the final two main points this Lord's Day, I should note that it is not because God's moral law is not wholly just good or spiritual, that is, that it is unfit as the basis for man's salvation. To the contrary, the law partakes of all of those divine characteristics, according to Paul in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 14, where he says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good, And then in verse 14 he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. It is inspired and dictated by the Spirit of God. So you see, the weakness lies not in the law, but in man due to his sin, due to his own corruption. He does not desire, nor is he even able to submit himself to the law of God by way of absolute perfection and obedience. The law is demonstrated again to be exactly this, that it is holy, just, good, and spiritual, because that is the very law which Jesus Christ came to fulfill. Jesus Christ kept perfectly, absolutely, in his thoughts, his desires, his motives, his intentions, as well as in his words and in his deeds, 
the law of God. All of God's moral commandments were kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, the Lord would not have done so if there was something wrong with the law itself. But he came as the second Adam in the covenant of grace to fulfill what the first Adam broke, what the first Adam did not keep, and which we, who are in that covenant of Adam, are unable to keep and which Jesus Christ in the covenant of grace keeps for us, that we might be declared righteous before God on the basis of His law-keeping, on the basis of His obedience, not our own. Thus we find in the New Testament that the law as a covenant of works is condemned that the law as a covenant of works is condemned as a meritorious cause of our justification before God, or even as a meritorious cause for our sanctification before God. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 states very clearly, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. You see, sin would have dominion over us if we were under the law as a covenant of works, because the law does not in and of itself offer a promise nor the help to overcome the sin in our life. It simply condemns us for the sin that is in our life doesn't give us any promise or help or aid to do so. Therefore, as a covenant of works, the Scripture condemns the law as a, as, a, as a covenant of works, as a means of being justified, or as a grounds for justification. The same thing is taught in Romans 7, 6. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. How are we delivered? We're delivered from the law as a covenant of works. It is not the basis of the grounds for our justification. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Again, the law as to its letter, the law as a covenant of works, condemns and kills and destroys. But the Spirit of Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, saves forevermore. And in Galatians chapter 4, there are, in verses 24 through 26, there are two covenants which descend from Hagar and from Sarah. A covenant, again, of works, a covenant of grace. There are two mountains, Mount Sinai, there is Mount Zion. 
You see, the Jews at that particular time were seeking to be justified on the basis of the law of God. And Paul clearly states that if one is seeking to obey merely the commandments given by Moses in order to be justified, it is a covenant which destroys and condemns. Apart from a promise from God, we cannot be saved. And that promise is in Jesus Christ. However, before I move on to the next point, I must say that the moral law of God, the moral law of God is never condemned as a rule of life for the Christian, but rather is much commended as a rule of life for the Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, speaking about ministry to various types of people, he says, to them that are without law, speaking with regard to the Gentiles, as without law. In other words, he would go to the Gentiles who are without law and he would proclaim to them the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. The law is not something evil and wicked. The law continues to be a rule of life for the Christian. The commandments of God direct us. They show the goodness of God. Once we are declared righteous by God, we want to know how can we serve the Lord? How can we be obedient? How can we show our love and our thankfulness to Christ for all that He has done for us? Well, the Lord says, Obey my commandments. Demonstrate your love by following me. By keeping my commandments. Not in order to be justified, but in order to demonstrate your love for me in order to walk according to the righteousness of my will, that revealed will of God. We find in 1 John 5.3 as well, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. The commandments of God to the Christian who is declared righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, does not find God's commandments grievous. His moral commandments, His moral law, to them is a delight. He finds great joy in reading and meditating upon God's law. He finds great joy and delight in going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the will of God that God has given to him. The law obviously still speaks to the Christian in some ways as to defining the will of God for what is sin. According to 1 John 3, 4, <clears throat> Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. 
for sin is the transgression of the law. The next question, obviously, to ask is, do Christians sin? John says in 1 John verses chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so because Christians sin, they sin because they sin against God's law, his revealed will for their life in thought, word, and deed. And for that, we come to God having been justified by faith. We don't come to God as our judge. We come to God now as our Father because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We come to receive not judicial forgiveness, but fatherly forgiveness. We come as a child to a parent because we desire to enjoy communion with Jesus Christ to the fullest. And we know that our sin hinders that communion. And we know we will be chastened and disciplined for our sin if we don't confess that sin to the Lord and seek his fatherly forgiveness. And so, the scriptures do teach that the law as a covenant of works has nothing to do with the Christian, but the law as a rule of life is to continue to direct the Christian in all the ways appropriate for obedience in his life to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. The second main point is the depravity of man blinds him to his own sin. In Mark chapter 10, verse 20, we read these words, And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. All these. All the commandments. I have observed and kept from my youth. Here it is evident that this rich young ruler is blinded in ignorance to his own sinful violation of God's holy commandments. He takes what Christ says and rather seeks to justify himself rather than condemning himself for his violation. He can only see his law-keeping in terms of mere outward obedience to the letter of the law. He has not shown outward contempt and disrespect to his parents. He has not outwardly murdered another man. He has not outwardly committed adultery with another man's wife. He has not outwardly robbed another man. He He has not outwardly lied to another man or borne false testimony against another man. And on the basis of that outward obedience, he in effect says, I've kept all of the laws. Where do I yet lack? Where have I blown it? Why don't I yet have peace of conscience? However, his eyes are blind 
to the innumerable ways he has indeed violated God's law in his thoughts, intentions, motives, desires, and affections. He does not understand that the law not only addresses his outward behavior, but addresses as well his inward conformity to all the righteous standards of God. In Matthew's account, Matthew 19.20, this young man asked in desperation, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? In other words, I've done all that I know to do in order to be saved. I've kept all of God's commandments. What am I still lacking? I feel like I must do more in order to inherit eternal life. You see, this is ultimately the problem with looking to yourself for qualifications needed in order to be right before God. Where do you draw the line? When is enough enough? We can never answer that question as long as we are alive because enough is only enough when we continue to be absolutely perfect never having failed in the past, nor in the present, nor in the future. That's the only time when enough is enough. If salvation depends upon certain works that I perform or graces that are worked within me, then there can always be more that I might do to make a case for merit before God. Only when by the gracious work of God's Spirit in our lives, we stop working. We stop looking to ourselves for qualifications, whether repentance, love, self-sacrifice, sorrow, works of the law, and rather turn in faith to Jesus Christ alone will we be able to truly rest upon the faithfulness of God's promise the faithfulness of God's promise, which is so well summarized in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You see, to look to yourself as a qualification, to look inside of yourself, to find those qualifications that would merit God's acceptance and favor is to, in effect, say that God is indebted to me because of these things. God owes me His salvation on the basis of these things. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 4 says, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Not the penitent, not the repentant, not the one who loves him, not his friends, but who justifies the ungodly. His faith 
and I put in there that's not in the text, but this is the inference. His faith in Christ is counted for righteousness. Who worketh not. You see, dear ones, Hebrews 11.6 says without faith it's impossible to please God. If faith does not precede any other work, any other work cannot be pleasing to God. It is a legal work. It is not a work of the gospel. It is not a good work if it is a legal work prior to faith in Jesus Christ. It has no merit at all. Of course, works don't have merit again even after faith. I ask you, dear ones, are you like Abraham? Fully persuaded that what God has promised in the gospel, namely eternal life through Jesus Christ, that he is able to perform it. Are you confident and persuaded that that which God has promised, he is able and is faithful to perform that promise? That's saving faith. That persuasion which reaches out and receives the free gift of eternal salvation. That is the essence of saving faith. Looking with confidence outside of yourself to a good and faithful Savior who will keep His promise. That's the very point that is being illustrated in the various invitations which we find, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Ho, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. The Lord invites people to come to, to partake freely of the waters. Come, you who are without money. Come without cost. Don't look to yourself for qualifications. Certainly the Spirit of God will convict everyone who comes to Christ of his need of Christ, of his sin, but that's not a qualification. If anything, he looks at that as a disqualification, not as a meritorious act he performs, but as showing him desperately how much he needs Jesus Christ. Those who come to Jesus Christ alone through eternal salvation, the Lord, through their effectual calling, removes that blindness from his eyes so that they behold Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his glory. And their testimony is there is nothing, there is nothing more worthy, nothing more precious than Jesus Christ. I receive the gift of Jesus Christ. The third and final point is, the, is this. The sin of covetousness turns one away from Christ. This will be rather short because uh, the, the text actually continues in Mark chapter 10. 
next week along the same uh, lines that we're uh, ending this Lord's Day. We'll pick up there and we'll find that the Lord Jesus speaks more and more about the sin of covetousness there. So we will not say all that needs to be said at this point, but certainly reserve much to be said next Lord's Day. Our text states that the Lord, in verse 21, it says, that Jesus beholding him loved him. Interesting words. He beheld him and loved him. In what sense did Jesus love this man? Well, one of two possible senses. It may have been with the love of benevolence, which the Lord has for all men as they are his creatures. Whether elect or reprobate, whether regenerate or unregenerate, the Lord has a love of benevolence for all his creatures, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. On the basis that he sends rain and sunshine upon the just and upon the unjust, on the basis of that, the Lord says to us, love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. If you only do good to those who do you good and whom you like, how are you better than the heathen? The Lord is calling us to show a kind of love which He Himself exemplifies toward all of His creation. So perhaps it's in that sense, this love of benevolence that is referred to in Mark 10, verse 21. Or it may have been with the love of eternal election, which the Lord has for all those whom he has chosen to save from eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or properly, or more properly, or correctly, the period should probably be after without blame before him, so that the next verse begins in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children. But that's an eternal love which the Lord has. Perhaps this man's initial response in being sorrowful at what Christ said and leaving and going away with sorrow was not his final response. The text doesn't say whether it was his final response or not. But perhaps it was that type of a love which the Lord had. We're not told. But the Lord next puts his divine finger upon the particular sin which this rich young ruler did not himself see, nor for which he did not desire forgiveness, the sin of covetousness. For Christ, as the eternal Son of God, gives him a unique command. He was to go and sell everything that he owned and to give it to the poor and come and follow Christ. As his disciple, the Lord says to him 
Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And his response that we see in verse 22, And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. This was, as I said, a unique command that was given to this, to this particular man. Much like the unique command that God gave to Abraham to go and sacrifice his only begotten son. To offer Isaac up on Mount Moriah. That was unique to Abraham. No one is to infer from that 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 is our continued obligation to offer up to the Lord as a sacrifice our children. So likewise, this particular command was spoken uniquely to this rich young ruler to go and sell everything that he owned and give it to the poor and to come and follow Christ. This was not a vow of poverty as is alluded to or, or proclaimed by the Romish church in their monastic vows. This was a unique command for God calls all men to work for their own bread. If a man will not labor, if a man will not work, then let him not eat. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 even in this particular case, it may have been that the Lord was calling him to be an itinerant preacher, that he would earn his living by his calling if he gave all up. That's certainly legitimate if one gives up all, but not to go begging after having given up all, to go begging for one's bread if one is able body and able to work. That's a violation of God's word and God's commandments. And I would also simply say before concluding that this was not a work to be done by this man before saving faith or in order to merit saving faith or in order to merit salvation in any way for what the Lord here commands him to do, if he were to do so, presupposes saving faith. It was not meritorious at all. In conclusion, dear ones, I wonder if the Lord were to put a similar command to any of us if we would like this man walk away from Christ filled with great sorrow, would we likewise manifest covetousness in turning away from Christ if by God's providence everything we own was taken from us? Our home, our cars, our jobs, our health, our children, our spouse, 
our freedom, our life. For wherever, dear ones, we would draw the line and say, God, I am willing to part with this, but no more. You cannot take this from me. That reveals the sin of covetousness in our own hearts, in our own lives, if we're willing to draw the line anywhere. The only thing that we would plead with God and say, Lord, this I cannot part with is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Otherwise, we find ourselves in the same situation as this rich, young ruler, drawing the line, walking away sorrowful because of our possessions. You see, this rich young ruler was trusting in his good works and he was trusting in his riches, but neither of these could save him. And dear ones, if we're not willing, though God may not call us to part with those things I mentioned earlier, if we are not willing to do so, it reveals that we are trusting in those things. Therein is our confidence. Therein is our hope. Therein is our joy and contentment and peace. Therein is our life. You see, the Lord is calling us all through this particular example to understand that Jesus Christ alone, bar nothing, is our hope of eternal salvation. We can only trust in Him. Why settle, dear ones, for the treasures of this life when you can enjoy the treasures of heaven for all eternity? Turn from yourself. Turn from everything in which you trust today. And turn in faith alone to Jesus Christ and embrace Him as your only hope of eternal salvation. For dear ones, there is nothing that is more valuable or priceless than Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how Thy Word and Thy Spirit shine the spotlight into our own lives and reveal to us our sin, our sin of covetousness this day. How we have been made, O Lord, even each one of us, to squirm as the Word of God penetrates to our hearts, how we have been brought to search our own lives and to search our hearts and to ask these most important questions, in whom do we trust? In whom is our life? In whom is our joy and peace and contentment? Well, Lord, we pray that we would not be like this rich young ruler and walk away sorrowful, realizing that Jesus Christ is not our only hope of eternal salvation, 
But, O oh, Father, grant to each of us the gift of faith to embrace the Lord Jesus alone, to see his infinite value and, and beauty. We pray, our God, that the glories of our salvation might be manifested this day as we have sought by thy Spirit and by thy word to reveal, O Lord, the, the futility of seeking to be righteous by the works of the law. And yet, O Lord, the wondrous blessing that is ours in being declared righteous through Jesus Christ alone. Father, we thank Thee for opening our eyes to see these truths today. Cause us now to go forth as doers of the Word and to apply it in our lives and not to forget soon what Thou hast said to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says, 
that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.